All right, fellow fact checkers, we've got a brand new sponsor, and I am excited to promote this product. It's Fox and Sons Coffee. Now, Fox and Sons Coffee is a family-owned and operated small business selling whole bean, organically roasted, amazingly good coffee. On their website, Steve, the company's founder, describes how his love of coffee started with special Saturdays with his dad when he was growing up. Steve wants to share his love of coffee with you and the entrepreneurial spirit with his sons. Check out the website, foxnsons.com. And take a look at their best offer. A monthly subscription for three bags of coffee with free shipping for $38.89. Also, Steve's been on the show. He's a friend of the show. He follows us on the morning after as well as here on Fact Check This Podcast. Steve is a great dude. Great company to support. So go check out Fox and Sons Coffee. And get your morning started off right with a bag of delicious Fox and Sons Coffee. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. All right, Fact Check This Podcast. And today I've got two articles that I'm going to read. And this is going to be a follow-up to the Emily Oster's uh, pandemic amnesty article from a couple weeks ago. And all this stuff has gotten beat to death over the last couple weeks. So if it seems redundant, I apologize. I think it's worth talking about. Some more, especially as there are more people who are kind of jumping in and giving well thought out, well written responses to her article and the reaction to her. So that's what we're going to take a crack at for these two articles today. One of them is more on the Emily Oster side, not not exactly. But it's kind of a apologetics for her her article. And then the other one is very much on the side of those of us who aren't uh, in favor of the amnesty thing. So I'm going to try to run through both of these relatively quickly. And and then I'll kind of give commentary from there. Is it time for pandemic forgiveness? Forgiveness alone won't bring personal or political reconciliation, but it's an important step in that direction. And this is from uh, John Inazu's Substack. I'm not sure who John Inazu is. I saw this getting shared around, so I thought it was worth reading. After reading it, I was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this. In her classic work, The Human Condition, the political philosopher Hannah Arendt Arendt, uh, famously described the faculty of forgiving as the only remedy against the predicament of irreversibility of action. As Arendt noted, without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we would never recover. We would remain the victims of its consequences forever. Arendt's argument implicitly focuses or focused on personal forgiveness, the act of forgiveness extended to one by one person to another. But her observations also have broader social implications. Several years ago, I wrote an article highlighting the relationship between personal forgiveness and political forgiveness, drawing not only from Arendt but also from theological sources. I suggested that forgiveness can have broad political effects, but requires both 
aggregated acts of personal forgiveness and a shared narrative framework that makes sense of them as a whole. And importantly, forgiveness alone does not reconcile. Reconciliation is only possible when forgiveness by the person offended is matched with repentance by the offender. I see that's the important part of forgiveness. And that's why we're kind of coming up on this. Nobody who was on the right side of the COVID lockdown mandate arguments is very willing to forgive anybody. It's because there is no actual repentance from the other side. And unless that changes, there will be no forgiveness. So we continue. In the news, earlier this week, Emily Oster caused quite a stir with an Atlantic essay titled Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. As Oster noted, the uncertainty and frenzy in the early days of COVID-19 pandemic meant that people took different sides on almost every conceivable policy response. She observed, on, and on every topic, someone was eventually proved right and someone else was proved wrong. In some instances, the right people were right for the wrong reasons. In other instances, they had a prescient understanding of the available information. Oster noted that those who ended up being right may want to gloat, while those who got it wrong may feel defensive and retrench into a position that doesn't accord with the facts. She suggested that instead that we should forgive each other and work on solving the social problems highlighted and created by COVID and the responses to it. Reactions were swift and unforgiving. Predictably, they came from both sides. Here's a representative, though relatively tempered, response from someone on the left on the left, unhappy about easing restrictions too early. Uh, and this is uh, Bogwitch Energy at No Home Like Place says Emily Oster is the exact perfect representation of everything banal and evil about U.S. pandemic propaganda. You couldn't have invented her. Cost-benefit analysis, sunk cost, pandemic amnesty. When children, their caregivers, their teachers were sacrificed for the economy. Now, see, this Bogwitch energy bullshit is one of those people who thinks that, that children and teachers were being sacrificed for the economy, that we were opening up schools to, to get the economy back on track and so that everybody could be successful. Never mind all of the information that said that kids were never a, a transmission vector and that schools were not dangerous at all for anybody. Meanwhile, on the right, conservative comment, uh, commentator Matthew Schmitz tweeted, no, let's see apologies to Rusty Reno, Peter Hitchens, Helen Andrews, and all the others who stood against the hysteria. And that's that's largely the response from everybody on the who was on the right side of, and I'm not saying right as in like conservative, although that's more or less where they fall, who was on the right side of the COVID argument is no, there will be no amnesty. There will be no forgiveness until you actually come out and say, we're sorry. These are the things we did wrong and take some steps to uh, remedy, to right those wrongs. As my friend Michael Weir noted, these responses and many like them suggest that rather than seeing and admitting their own mistakes during the pandemic, people are more inclined to think I've been wronged and I'll never let them forget it. Well, we kind of have. Weir sees the political implications of this personal mindset. Oster is warning against what I see in communities all over the country, the continued cultivation of bitter resentment. Yes, toward government officials, but most troubling, troublingly, bitter resentment towards their own schools, the businesses down the street that didn't do what they should have, 
the family members who enforce precautions or refuse to respect them. See, this is some more this is some more of that leftist COVID regime bullshit. And he predicts that while this political posture may work to strengthen our unity with those whose pandemic responses were similar to ours and solidify our antipathy towards those who chose differently, it will lead us to an increasingly desolate place until we find ourselves in another critical crisis, in need of people willing to question the status quo, only to find everything still burning from the fire we set and nurtured. There's a really easy solution to this. It's to find those people who were willing to question the status quo and say, I'm fucking sorry. I'm sorry. You were right and we were wrong. We're sorry that we tried to run you off, that we tried to have your bank accounts closed, that we tried to have you removed from your jobs, that we literally ran you out of stores, that we wouldn't allow you to go see your loved ones in the hospital. We're sorry. You were right. And we won't do it again. But that's not coming. That's not coming. So this fire is going to continue to burn and it's going to continue to be nurtured because of bullshit like this that suggests that we should just forgive everybody. Everybody needs forgiveness. There is no repentance. There is no apology. So there will be no forgiveness. In my head, as I mentioned at the beginning of this post, forgiveness is only one side of reconciliation which also requires repentance. I noticed an absence of repentance in Oster's piece and wondered whether a differently framed essay might have better modeled the possibility of reconciliation. Yes, absolutely. If she would have admitted fault and apologized, we can take some steps forward from there. There was no apology anywhere in there. But like Weir, I was also struck by the lack of grace in the response to her piece. For starters, Oster is clearly right that we've all made pandemic mistakes. See, this is more of that bullshit because we didn't. We didn't. You say that we made pandemic mistakes because we didn't trust the science or what the fuck ever. But we didn't make the mistakes. You made the mistakes. You were at fault. So you are the one who should apologize. You are the one who should be repentant, not us. We did not get it wrong. We were not. And even if we had been wrong. We weren't trying to force you out of your job. We weren't trying to force you out of your community. We weren't trying to force you out of the fucking grocery store. That was you. That was your side. We don't have anything to apologize for because we didn't do anything wrong. Still, I remain uncertain how reconciliation should unfold in the wake of this pandemic. It may be that public commentators and public officials should convey forgiveness and repentance to one another and, when appropriate, express repentance to their constituencies. Ideally, political consequences should follow from the more egregious and harmful policy decisions, including those from conservative politicians who ignored compelling evidence about COVID mitigation. What do they ignore? What evidence? Are you talking about DeSantis for allowing his state to be open? Are you talking about Christy Nome for allowing her state to be open? Are you talking about Abbott and Kemp for allowing their states to be open? Because that's proven out that they were no worse for the wear. No worse off than, say, New York and California that went the opposite direction. So what do they what what do they need to 
apologize for? What do they need to be held accountable for? What do they need to be punished for? And liberal politicians who ignored compelling evidence about the relatively low risk of in-person schooling. Or how about the liberal politicians who ignored the extremely high risk of locking all of these elderly people in a nursing home? But perhaps it's more plausible and more actionable to think about forgiveness and repentance in our our individual and interpersonal relationships. Like you, I have friends and family whose pandemic choices have complicated and in some cases wounded our relationships. In many of these cases, forgiveness is far less preferable to holding grudges or keeping score. I can also think of plenty of my own missteps. I was less than charitable when I tried to convince local institutional leaders to comply with local mandates. My wife and I had more arguments than I care to remember over whether I could meet our meet outside with three friends in our driveway, an activity at one point absurdly prohibited by a county ordinance. I've grown angry at friends for seemingly selfish pandemic decisions. And looking back, my pandemic posture has at times been much like my posture while driving. Everyone moving faster than me is a reckless idiot, and everyone driving slower is a lifeless joy killer. I can, I can, I can, I can relate to that at least. Whatever the truth of the pandemic may be, it's definitely not my truth. And it's definitely not your truth. The more we live like our own COVID missteps were justified and reasonable, while those of others demand their repentance before we can forgive, the more we were hard on ourselves, our neighbors, and ultimately our society. Okay, that's all well and good, except that you're still making this argument from the side that was wrong. And you're trying to tell the side that was right on everything. You should just be more charitable. You should just be more kind. You should just be more understanding. Look, we know. We tried to force you out of your jobs. We tried to force you to get a thing that was completely experimental and that you had no interest in. We tried to keep your kids from going to school. We tried to keep you from going to the grocery store. We tried everything. And we were wrong. But you should forgive us for it because it was all in good interest. In fact, we should forgive you for being right about everything, too. Uh, that's basically what you're saying here. So, yeah, I'm going to hold grudges. I'm going to keep score because the score looks pretty fucking bad for your side. And it looks really good for my side. I didn't wound any of those relationships. I didn't say anything directly offensive to anybody. I'm not the one who unfriended people. And if anybody would like to come and apologize, for things that were said, or even things that were done. I will always be glad to accept your apology and forgive you. But you're going to have to come in and do it. I'm not going to seek you out and say, look, hurtful things were said on both sides, and, and I'm sorry for whatever part I played, because my part was to tell you the truth, and your part was to get pissed off at it, and then allow that to damage the, the relationship. I don't need to apologize for that. And I don't have to give forgiveness for that. That's my personal choice. Just like it was your personal choice to unfriend me and to call me a grandma killer and whatever the fuck else. In the world, the interconnectedness between personal and political forgiveness is powerfully demonstrated in Desmond Tutu's No Future Without Forgiveness. Tutu explores the importance of forgiveness 
to the truth and reconciliation process that unfolded in South Africa in the 1990s. Importantly, the failure of widespread repentance by white South Africans to match the, the costly forgiveness of black South Africans precluded genuine reconciliation on a societal level. But that political failure does not negate the importance of personal forgiveness in the South African story. The title alone warrants the recommendation, but Tutu's words and actions show why forgiveness has political as well as personal dimensions. Tutu noted the ways in which publicizing acts of personal forgiveness practically aided uh, efforts to shape a national narrative. Drawing from the Christian theology that guided his approach, Tutu contends that there is a moral universe, which means that despite all the evidence that seems to the contrary, there is no way that evil and injustice and oppression and lies can have the last word. As he noted elsewhere, these are not just airy, fairy, religious, and spiritual things, nebulous and unrealistic, but they are the stuff of practical politics. And on this closing, the COVID regime acts like they are the black South Africans who needed to create the general reconciliation and that we, the ones who were on the right side of the whole COVID narrative, we're, we're the white South Africans who failed to repent. And maybe, maybe with the roles being reversed, we need to be more forgiving. but I just don't see how it's going to happen. It's, it's just, there's too much animosity. Because the things of South Africa were generational. While this is literally two years ago, and it's still too fresh. So we're moving on to another article and this one's a bit longer but man it's so good so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to read through the whole thing and i highly recommend head over to the website it's on unheard uh it's from mary harrington and and if you listen to the article it's actually her reading it and she includes a little bit in her reading of it that is not just right there in the text so it's really really excellent listen not just read. So I highly recommend heading over and listening to her read it because she's going to read her own article a hell of a lot better than I do. The tyranny of a COVID amnesty. A self-righteous cabal has delivered a public that is sicker and poorer. I spent the last days of innocence before Trump and Brexit heavily pregnant. Like many first-time moms, I read a lot of pregnancy books, but the one I liked most was Expecting Better, written by Emily Ulster, an economist, the book sifts carefully through many of the dire warnings doled out to pregnant women about food, drink, birth choices, and so on, assessing the evidence for each. On Monday, the same author published an essay arguing for a pandemic amnesty. We would, she su suggests, move on from the conflict, fear, uncertainty, and doubt 
the role of the pandemic years and focus instead on the urgent issues of today. But while I can understand why Ulster might wish to put all the COVID-era bitterness back into a box labeled the common good, her effort to do so has not been well received. And this is a consequence of the very policies which Ulster would now like everyone to forgive and forget. Reading avidly in the run-up to my daughter's birth, I was already, it was already clear to me that many of the so-called mummy wars are proxies for class issues. Against this emotive backdrop, Oster's book felt like a refreshing counterbalance. It's astonishing, in fact, how recently I still felt possible, it still felt possible to weigh competing claims on the evidence and settle on something reasonable. But a great deal has changed since then, and it's easier to understand why when you consider the difference between trying to settle the mummy war, wars via science and trying to agree upon public health policy during a pandemic. If the mummy war is a class war writ small, COVID policy followed the same dynamic. It was, in fact, a class war writ so large, it encompassed every micromanagement, uh, minute micromanagement of nearly every facet of everyday life for years on end and doled out material consequences for dissenters. And it was all justified with reference to the supposedly neutral domain of science. This tracks a slow convergence of supposedly neutral governance with partisan class differences that as well as uh, that was well underway before the virus, a phenomenon exhaustively documented following the two plebeian revolutions of Brexit and Trump. These events get gestated concurrently with my daughter. I won't rehash the debates here, save to note that they represented the first shot across the bows of the end of history, belief that the technocracy could genuinely neutral, could be genuinely neutral and based in objective evidence. In questioning this doctrine, uh, the mutineers dragged an incipient class war into the open between the NS lions uh, characterizes as the virtuals of the laptop class and the physicals whose work is more rooted in the material world. Amid this conflict, Oster's plead for amnesty is unlikely to be heard since under those appeals to neutral science, much of COVID policy served in practice as a virtual counter volley to the 2016 uprisings. So some kind of, she uses a lot of big words here. Uh, the 2016 uprisings that she's talking about with Brexit and Trump, those were largely viewed as the, the physicals that, she, that are referenced here. The working class rising up against the, the technocratic class, the, the upper echelon elite types who are referred to as the virtuals or the laptop class in this article. So, so 2016 saw the uprising of the physicals kind of trying to wrestle power back and put people in charge who were more of their ilk. And the the effects of the COVID policy are the backlash from the virtuals or the laptop class. In its most rarefied, dematerialized virtual form, the contours of that counter volley are captured by a short series of declarations of faith. This text, a kind of Nicene Creed for virtuals, first appeared in response to Trump's election and has multiplied across posters, t-shirts, tote bags, and in America where they do such things, signs stuck in the front lawns of the faithful. This is 
beautiful and brilliant because she's tying this back to a religious creed. And you're going to recognize this thing as soon as as soon as you hear it, if you're not watching the show and have read it already. The virtual creed reads as follows. In this house, we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. Each of, the, each of these dicta sounds unimpeachable in theory, but is far more contentious in practice. No human Ill, is illegal, for instance, sounds true, but how do we manage the welfare state without a means of distinguishing between citizens and non-citizens? When this lawn sign first appeared, I could have given you a critical rundown of the political pitfalls and ideological sleights of hand buried in all of those dicta, bar the claim that science is real. Since then, though, I've seen this line in the virtual's creed weaponized without compunction as a bludgeon to enforce a moral consensus that wasn't scientific and wasn't rational. This consensus was, instead, far more religious in character. Even famous and high-profile dissenters have faced harassment at its hands for airing topics that ought you'd think to be within the scope of objective discussion. Celebrity podcaster Joe Rogan has faced calls to be canceled after asking COVID questions. Unheard's Freddie Sayers was censored for interviewing lockdown dissenter and former WHO cancer lead Dr. Carol Sikora. Nor is having expertise or evidence on your side much of a defense. Dr. Peter McCullough, a top American cardiologist, argued against vaccinating those with natural COVID immunity and voiced concerns about the effect of COVID vaccine on cardiac health. For expressing such views, and despite evidence that natural immunity is more robust than the vaccine and that myocarditis is a recognized side effects of the vaccine, McCullough now faces being struck off by an American medical board, which has since happened. Even as scientific debate has been stifled, obvious interferences from widely available evidence were ignored when those conflicted with settled virtual consensus. There was, for example, no rationale for mandatory vaccination once it became clear that, as acknowledged as far back as December 2021 by even the virtual's house journal, the New York Times, vaccines didn't prevent virus transmission, and yet mandates remained in place across many locations long after that date. Indeed, around the time of the New York Times article was published, Oster herself was advocating escalating pressure to vaccinate from public shame to stopping the unvaccinated from traveling, working, or attending events. This is why there will be no forgiveness until there is apology, until there is re repentance for that behavior, there will be no forgiveness. It may be optimistic for Oster and others of the virtual class to try to restore public faith that science is real. But it's also understandable. Understandable, First, for reasons or of self-interest, those who drove COVID policy presented themselves not just as people doing their but as their best, but as the sole bearers of rational truth and life-saving moral authority. Doubtless, the laptop class would prefer that we judge COVID policy by intention, not results, lest too close an evaluation result in their fingers being prized from the baton of public righteousness. That's the whole point of the amnesty thing. They want us to forgive them and to judge them based on their intent, not on the actual things that they did, the things that they said, the results of their behaviors. We just didn't know any better. But the rot goes deeper still. For the very foundation of that moral authority is a shared trust in the integrity of scientific consensus. And COVID has left us in no doubt 
that there is a great deal of gray area between science and moral groupthink. Where science shades into the latter, British care workers and American soldiers and police officers dismissed for refusing a vaccination that doesn't stop transmission can attest that science is sometimes real, more in the sense of institutionally powerful and self-righteous than in the sense of truth. That's like the most powerful line of this whole thing. Science is sometimes real, more for the sense of institutionally powerful and self-righteous than in the sense of truth. And this touches on another source of, source of rage that many would doubtless like to forget, the asymmetry in whose shoulders bore the heaviest load. It wasn't the lawn sign people who bore the brunt of lockdowns. They could mostly work from home. Rather, lockdown shuttered countless small businesses permanently or burned them to the ground in lawn sign-endorsed riots that were justified on public health grounds even as others were fined for attending Holy Communion in a park. Our journey to this point was at every stage narrated as the inescapable conclusion of science, which is real. But nearly three years from out from the start of the pandemic, it looks a great deal more like the mass consensus of public health officials and their journalistic cheerleaders has delivered a public that is sicker, unhappier, and poorer across a host of measures. Ulster listed among the urgent issues of the day the learning loss experienced by children as a consequence of COVID policy, with the youngest and poorest hardest hit. She notes the drop-off in routine vaccinations, also a consequence of COVID policy. To this list, we might add the rise in non-COVID excess deaths, also a consequence of COVID policy, not to mention the stagnant economy and rocketing inflation rate. And these are all downstream of a pandemic-era public discourse that felt like Brexit-Trump wars on steroids, a battle for class dominance in which one side used its stranglehold on public institutions to frame censorship as fact-checking, and all dissenters as stupid, unscientific, or actively hateful. It's not that we collectively tried to get it right and mistakes were made. It's that a self-righteous cabal arrogated to themselves a priestly right to determine the proper social order and to excommunicate those who didn't conform. Their record in securing the comic good, common good speaks for itself. We were not coming at this from an unscientific, stupid, uneducated, uninformed perspective. We were looking at the actual stats and, and figures and data that was available. And we were saying, these are the things that you should be looking at. And the cabal actively moved to censor us to remove us from platforms, to remove the licenses of medical professionals who were, in, who were dissenting, to take people out of society entirely. That's what their goal was. Public faith in objectively shared political ground was already dissolving while my daughter gestated. If the virtuals have a problem now, it's that their counter volley to Trump and Brexit consumed the last vestige of trust in that shared political ground, our faith in science. And the notion that such ground exists in the sine qua non of virtual political legitimacy in its current technocratic form. In this light, Ulster's call for amnesty can present itself as an effort to rebuild the neutral space of shared political endeavor after a period of conflict. But it reads as a continuation of now, fami now familiar efforts to weaponize the appearance of such neutrality and common purpose in the interests of one side of that conflict. 
that's another thing that the left or those who are in the COVID regime don't seem to understand. We've seen neutrality. Those of us who were on the right side of this the whole time have seen this neutrality be used as a weapon against us to lure us in so that you can stab us in the fucking back. We all knew every pandemic policy would come with trade-offs. The law and signed priesthood forbade any discussion of those trade-offs. I don't blame the class that so piously dressed their own material interests as of the common good for wanting to dodge the baleful looks now coming their way. But no amnesty will be possible that doesn't acknowledge the class politics, the corruption of scientific process, the self-dealing, and the self-righteousness that went to enforcing those grim years of law and signed tyranny. Science, it turns out, is not always real, and nor, I suspect, will kindness now be everything. I think that's the kind of the thing I'd like to close on is the discussion of the the trade-offs. Because everybody on on the right side of things, we were willing to talk about the trade-offs. Like, yes, we acknowledge that there is a risk to people with comorbidities. We acknowledge that there is a risk to people who are already high risk. We acknowledge that there's a risk to old people. We acknowledge that there are certain trade-offs that you're going to have to decide to make, that some people are going to be sick, that some things are going to have to be accepted as a part of dealing with a pandemic. But the doing all of these other things is unnecessary. Whereas the, the COVID cabal didn't want to talk about any of the side effects of locking people in their homes for months on end, of not allowing sick people to go get treatment, of not allowing people who might have cancer to go get screenings, of not allowing drug, drug addicts to go to their meetings, of not allowing children to go to school. They didn't want to talk about the consequences of rushing a drug to market, of forcing people to get that just to keep their job. They didn't want to talk about any of the side effects, any of the consequences, any of the possible repercussions. You were just supposed to do it because science is real and science is true, and we believe in science. And if you don't do all of these things that we say without question, then you don't believe in science. And they will never apologize for that. And until they do, there can be no amnesty. There can be no forgiveness. There can be no moving on. And they're not going to do it. So here we will sit forever until the next one comes around. And then we're all going to sit here on the same side and we're going to say we were right again because we're going to be right again. And they're going to be wrong again because they don't believe in science. They don't believe in any of the things that they claim they believe in. What they believe in is that they have some sort of higher moral authority than you do because you are of a different political class than they are. And that's it. And that's it. Highly recommend you go read these yourselves. They're excellent, excellent articles. Uh, the second, the first one, fuck that guy. Uh, read the second, the the second one that I just finished up. The uh, from Unheard, Mary Harrington, the tyranny of COVID amnesty. Phenomenal art. Share it everywhere. Tag her and everything you share it in because it is a great, great article. I, I don't do it justice by any means.
thanks for tuning in. Hope you got something out of this, or if nothing else, it gave you some uh, some weapons to take out and uh, use against the the COVID cabal as they continue to ask for forgiveness without offering repentance. Hope you have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week. Be sure to tune in next time when I talk about. Not sure. We'll see. Have a good one, everybody. Don't forget to head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check out our longest and most favorite sponsor, Carlos Vanessa Abelar and Paloma Verde CBD. Get all of your CBD needs, and you get 10% off your order of $75 or more, plus anything over $75 is free shipping. So head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com to get all your CBD needs. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you.